0: We are in Deuteronomy chapters 25 and 26 today uh, as we race through this book. Um, We also, we have come today to the end of a long section on the Ten Commandments, essentially starting all the way back in chapter 5. So the first uh, four chapters were sort of the introduction and then there's a long exposition of the law. An introduction of the Ten Commandments and then Moses Uh, teaches on the Ten Commandments, and today we've finally gotten to the Tenth Commandment. And then in two weeks, uh, because we have a guest speaker next week, uh, we'll get to the last uh, handful of chapters and uh, look at how Moses concludes the book. So you wanna go ahead and turn there near the end of Deuteronomy. Um, It's a lot of verses, so I'm not gonna read it all now. We'll read some of the verses as uh, we go through. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it, while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to this, the last of the 10 Commandments. You teach us that the law is not only about outward obedience, but inward desires. But our desires can be so sinful and you want our desires to be for you and for your son and for your spirit and for your word. So as always, give us the right desires so that we may learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us know God more and see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, As some of you know, uh, I have to go to cardiac rehabilitation lab three times a week for some fancy supervised exercise. And now, I usually call it cardiac camp because that just sounds like more fun. But sadly, that name has not caught on yet. Anyway, while I'm there uh, walking on the treadmill, they have four large TVs going. And two of them show whatever's on ESPN. And the other two have HGTV, which is a home improvement network. And early in the morning, they always have the same show on, uh, at least on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, because those are the days I go. And the show is called No Demo Reno. And essentially, they take this boring old regular house, and despite the name of the show, they demo the inside and then rebuild it into something that's supposed to be, and they emphasize these words, glamorous and fabulous. Those two words are a staple of the show. It's transformation from the inside out. That's the idea anyway. So they take this random house and they redesign it, and then the real work starts and they demo it. And the most fascinating part, it makes me smile every time, as when they hand the homeowner a sledgehammer. And the homeowner gets to knock out some drywall. And when the people realize they get to smash the wall with a sledgehammer, their face just lights up like this is the coolest thing ever. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that happen to someone else before. But if you hand Mark Rist a power tool, you will get that same reaction. (laughs) But there's one problem. I don't know if they ever get any of these projects done. Cardiac camp ends before the rebuilding. (laughs) I get to see the sledgehammer and the destruction, but I never get to see the reconstruction, which leads to glamorous and fabulous. I get to see the demolition, but I never get to see the rebuilding. I never get to see the transformation. And I think a lot of people approach the Ten Commandments like a home improvement project. Except like me, they never get past the demolition to the rebuilding. They never get to see the transformation. I mean, think about it. We look at the Commandments, we see all these don'ts, all the thou shalt nots, And we get this mental image that God's up there just watching us screw everything up. As if God's looking down and just shaking his head. I heard you when you hit your thumb with the hammer. There goes the third commandment. (laughs) I saw you on the couch when you should have been at church. There goes the fourth commandment. I know what you were thinking when mom told you to pick up your room. Fifth commandment. And, Dad, I heard those words in that car when that guy cut you off on Route 7, Sixth Commandment. And, Ma'am, I saw you looking at that guy walking by, Seventh Commandment. And when you were cutting down that kid at school, you were stealing his reputation, Eighth Commandment. And then you came home and told Dad, Well, of course you got all your schoolwork done, Ninth Commandment. But I'm sure you never covet. Well, look at that car. I got to give me one. Oh, <laughs> nope, not me. Never covet. And that's the 10th commandment. Sound familiar? You know it does. And so we think, you know, that when it comes to me and God, I'm just one big demo project. And the 10 commandments are God's sledgehammer. And there's some truth to that. The law is supposed to convict us of sin. But it's not all truth. Because we forget there's a positive side to each one of the commandments. We get the sins forbidden part, that's the negative side. But we usually don't get to the duties required part, that's the positive side. And we usually don't get there, honestly, because duties required doesn't sound all that positive. But it is. Listen to the positive side of the 10th commandment, our topic for today. This comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 147. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. So first we're to be content and we're to be charitable to our neighbor. You may have heard the phrase, somebody says, a positive state of mind or a positive frame of mind. This says, a charitable frame of the whole soul. It is a wholehearted doing good to our neighbor. Now, as I said, we have a lot of text today, Deuteronomy 25 verse five through the end of the chapter and all of chapter 26. So I'm not gonna read it all, I'm gonna pick some verses about the positive side of the Tenth Commandment. How are we to have such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor? As that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. So today we're not going to look at what covenant is and isn't and how we should stop. Those are all important. And for that sermon, you can go to our website series on Ten Commandments from 2017, and you will find that sermon there, and it's listed for you in the footnotes if you have the sermon outline. So today we're going to look at the positive side of the commandment, the how-do-we-do-good part. And then I'm going to wrap up uh, the commandments as a whole. And we're going to start, we're actually going to look at three almost, seems like separate things, but they're just three different ways we should be doing good. And the first one is doing good to the widow. Doing good to the widow. I'm going to read uh, chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall be married outside the family to a str- or shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that sounds a little odd, but we've already seen that the covenant emphasizes the importance of the family in Israel. And the provision in this particular law is for a widow whose husband dies without a son and in such circumstances the brother of the deceased man is expected to enable the widow to have a child, in hope that a son would be born to take her husband's name this is called leverite marriage it's actually as strange as it sounds to us it is a merciful provision in the mosaic law now in ancient traditional, agrarian, patriarchal cultures. If a woman got married and her husband died before they could have children, she is left in a hard, desperate situation. There was no social security. There was no safety net. Um, And so she couldn't just go out and get a job. She had no children to take care of her. And because she had been previously married, it was uh, unlikely that she's going to be able to get somebody else to marry her. And it's likely that she's going to end up in extreme poverty and then may take extreme actions to try to survive. And so Moses provides a law to counteract that and basically says that if a man dies and they're childless, his brother or the nearest relative will marry her and keep her in the family. It's actually a merciful way of dealing with widows, which was a big problem in the ancient world we need to realize in the ancient Near East, it was a social stigma for a woman not to have a son. Not so much today, but it definitely was then. And so here you have a woman who's grieved because she's lost her husband, but to that hardship has been added the shame of not having a son. Sons would give a sense of security to the parents. It was assumed that when he grew up, he would accept responsibility For the welfare of his parents when they were no longer able to look out for themselves. And so that was the security plan. And that's really why the eldest son got a bigger inheritance, because he also was responsible to take care of the parents. Additionally, the continuity of the family name, very influential in Hebrew life. The presence in the Bible of all the genealogies illustrates the importance of having a known family name, a family background that can trace your ancestry back generations. A family without an heir would know that the social awareness of their family is going to perish in Israel. So this law is also designed to ensure that the deceased man's family name, verse 6, may not be blotted out of Israel. And so you now have to see there's several reasons for this law. And though it's completely alien to our culture, a law of this kind would have been immense comfort to a dying husband. His great anxiety would be that his wife would be without proper care in the years ahead. And if he's dying or has a terminal illness or has been wounded in battle, he'd be relieved to know that his brother would accept responsibility for the care of his wife. This law is also designed to protect the widow as well as continue the family line. It's important that we not add to her sorrow the anxiety of now having to find enough money to live. So the law begins with a prohibition emphasizing how wrong it would be for the bereaved woman to have to go outside the family to seek another husband. It says the family has to accept responsibility for her welfare, and in that culture, the most important thing was for her to have a son to love, raise, and care for, who then in turn would care for her. Now the reality is, and it sounds odd to uh, many of us, but we're already familiar with this practice because the law of Deuteronomy 25 is played out in the book of Ruth. In that book, Naomi determines to sell the land belonging to her dead husband in order to get some funds to survive. And there is a relative willing to buy the land, redeem the land from Naomi. But when they meet, Boaz steps up and reveals that along with the land comes the obligation to fulfill the law of Leverite marriage. That meant whoever redeems the land has to marry the dead man's relative in order to maintain the family line. And for one reason or another, perhaps his own family situation we're not told, this unnamed man can't do that. So he defers to the next in line for redemption and that's Boaz and Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. And that is something that travels throughout biblical theology throughout the Bible because ultimately Christ is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. But because Naomi is too old to have children, he gets to marry Ruth, who is Naomi's daughter-in-law, and who is also a widow. And that's who Boaz wanted to marry in the first place. And so it's through this strange law, at least to us, of Leverite marriage, that Boaz and Ruth become great-grandparents to King David, and are named in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1 so before you read some of these laws and write them off you know we need to think how does this play out in the rest of the bible and here it plays out very importantly they are in the line of redemption well it goes throughout the old testament culminates with christ so let's that's the first part let's go to the second part doing good to the neighbor and uh verses i'm not going to spend a lot of time on these verses because they're very obvious but let me just go ahead and read in verses 13 to 16. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, this is important in Amos, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, and most of the 8th century prophets. This is one of the major things charges the prophets bring against Israel. They say, you don't have fair weights and measures. So that it will come back again in the prophets. But from a legal perspective, these verses are just an amplification of the commandments. The covenant plainly forbids any kind of theft, 8th commandment, And using differing weights is simply stealing through deception, Ninth commandment. It describes all the other breaches, or most of the other breaches of the law. The theft of honor, robbing parents of the respect and obedience, which is their covenant privilege, 5th commandment. Theft of life, 6th commandment. Theft of love, 7th commandment. Theft of property or money, 8th commandment the theft of truth as in slander or false witness ninth commandment and have different weights and measures used to increase your profit at someone else's expense is a clear violation of the eighth commandment so why is it here in moses uh, exposition of the tenth commandment against coveting because the tenth commandment makes explicit what all the other commandments imply that obedience is a matter of the heart. But that also makes it hard to diagnose. I mean, how do you know if you're coveting? What does it look like? What are some of the outward manifestations of this inward condition of the heart? Well, let's actually look at the commandment again in Deuteronomy 5.21. It says, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now here we learn the words, first of all, that covet and desire is the same word. Use the same word translated as covet and desire. Um, then we also see that it's, the commandment is repeated. It appears twice to emphasize the point. You shall not covet, you shall not desire. Of all the Ten Commandments, it's the only commandment that's repeated twice. And not only emphasizes its importance, but also its comprehensive nature to the command. It comes with a list of people and things you shouldn't desire. In other words, your neighbor is repeated three times. And that makes the desire personal. God prohibits the desire for your neighbor's wife, possessions, Animals, etc. It's cutting right to the heart of the matter. And this shows us how the 10th commandment comes to interpret the other nine commandments. But it actually shows us how Jesus follows the internal logic of the 10 commandments. If you remember, he said, You shall not, you've heard that it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even desire another person's spouse. He's not creating new laws. He's using the Seventh Commandment and the Tenth Commandment together. He says, you know, you shouldn't murder, but I tell you, you shouldn't even hate. Okay, Sixth Commandment, Tenth Commandment. You can do this with most of the commandments. We must not uh, commit adultery, we don't even desire another spouse, we don't steal, we don't even desire what our neighbor owns. It's uh, obvious how desire relates to murder and false witness, We don't desire to murder our neighbor, that is to hate them. We don't lie to get things that we shouldn't have. Obedience to parents should be done because we desire to honor them. All of these are ways in which we do good to our neighbor. And so that's the second part, the last part of chapter 25. Um, And so we have doing good to the widow. We have laws there. We have doing good to the neighbor. We have laws there. And we get to chapter 26, and it's about doing good to the Lord. Doing good to the Lord. I'm going to start at verse 5. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, that's Abraham. And he went down into Egypt, that's Jacob, and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place. He's describing the ministry of Moses here. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. So worship is the central theme of Deuteronomy. And at this point in the story, we're actually being given uh, not just a command uh, for tithing or for first fruits, but it's actually a unique account of worship. The occasion is the presentation of the first fruits, that season when the Hebrew people brought their early and best produce as a thank offering to the Lord. And so these verses describe this simple yet moving ceremony with a liturgical pattern of Hebrew worship. It's recorded nowhere else in the Old Testament. The first thing we see is there to acknowledge God's greatness. To acknowledge God's greatness. When the worshiper comes into the sanctuary with his basket of freshly grown fruit, he's aware above all else of the abundant goodness of God. The man who brings his gift knows only too well that unless the Lord has been generous to him, he's got nothing to offer. You know, that fruit has to grow. You know, the crops need to grow. So, unless God gives you crops and fruit, you've got nothing to bring. And God was generous in what He said, what He has done, what He has given. And so, such generosity to us, to this man, has to be personally and publicly acknowledged in worship and with thanksgiving. That's the first thing we do is acknowledge God's goodness. Second, remember God's faithfulness. As the worshiper carries his basket, he presents it to the priest. He's encouraged not just to think of his offering. We read there was a quick little history of Israel. His mind is directed back to the beginning, not just to this present day and this present harvest, but to the past mercies of God, who has been good to the Hebrew people since long before this worshiper was born. The Israelite not only has an offering to bring, but he has something to say. Verse five, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. And so he tells them what to say. And they're important words. It deliberately brings to mind Abraham, Jacob and Moses and recalls God's faithfulness as a reliable provider and a mighty protector and a promised redeemer. So that's the second thing. Third, he is to honor God's uniqueness, verse 10. The Lord has kept his promise. He's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, and that's more than sentimental words. They have not only heard about this prosperous land, they're standing on the edge of it. They're about to enter it. And now it's time to acknowledge that the god of all that history of their historical destiny is also the lord of their agricultural success. They're gonna enter a land flowing with milk and honey. Why is this important? The false gods, Baal especially, was essentially a god of agriculture, a fertility god. If your crops grew, you thanked Baal. And so this presentation of first fruits is challenging every Israelite worshiper about the dangers of idolatry. The worshiper is required to make a public confession which challenges any attempt to combine Israel's worship with Baal. And as surely as the Lord God had brought them into the land, so he and he alone has provided out of his goodness for their abundant crops, verse 10, and now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O oh Lord, have given me. We are to acknowledge God in his goodness to us and honor him and not get it mixed with the idolatry of the surrounding lands. Fourth, we're to obey God's commands. Worship is to be a happy experience. The good things the Lord has given are not to be hoarded but they're to be shared. Verse 11, you shall rejoice in all the good the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Because the Lord has been good to you, you are to be good to your neighbor. Now in Deuteronomy 25 and 26, Moses is wrapping up his second speech to the generation waiting to enter the promised land. The Israelites are given specific laws for how they offer back to God what they've been so generously given by God. And Moses says at the very end of this chapter, he closes out his second speech, which goes all the way back to chapter 5. He ends it by saying, this day the Lord your God commands you to do all these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. So last, the worshiper is to affirm God's truth. Affirm God's truth. In the covenant between the Lord and his people, the Israelites publicly affirm their commitment. It says they declared that the Lord was their God and they would obey him, verse 17. He had spoken to them, the Lord your God commands, and so they must respond immediately, this day, unreservedly, with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 16, obediently, to walk in his ways, verse 17, totally keep all his commands, verse 18, and those who confess their loyalty to God know that he's affirming also his commitment to them. says, so and the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, you're secure. You are his treasured possession, you're loved. You are set high above all the other nations, you're privileged. And you are to be his holy people, you're dedicated. God has forged a relationship with them, built on his goodness and his grace, not on their might or their merit. And yet most of us know uh, the, the history of the Old Testament. While Israel has some really shining moments, they have a whole lot of not-so-shining moments. And often they get captivated by God's creation rather than God himself. And so they repeatedly sin and they fail to live in a right response and their relationship with their gracious father. But in their sin, they still receive the mercy of God. Because Israel has been shown such amazing grace and mercy, they're called to demonstrate this grace and mercy to the world around them as a mirror of the God who showed them grace and mercy in the first place. Now that also means that believers are called to be set apart as the people of God, and that means that our lives are actually supposed to look different from other people's lives. Our call to holiness is to reflect our Savior, Jesus. One of the most practical ways is by showing grace and mercy to people in our lives, just as we have been shown grace and mercy by God himself. We're called to show love to those who we believe don't deserve it, as well as to demonstrate mercy to those who wrong us. Such a lifestyle, similar to the calling given to the people of Israel, acts as a mirror for the grace and mercy that we've been shown in Christ. There's a reason do not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. It comes at the end because it's a fitting summary of everything that's come before. It's impossible to covet and love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It can seem strange. The Ten Commandments start with such lofty ideals. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. But they end with a dull whimper. Stop looking at that donkey. But do you see how the two are connected? God is saying, I'm the only God you need. Don't turn to Baal, don't turn to statues, don't turn to animals or friends or abilities or things or possessions. Let nothing else capture your gaze and your affections before me. At its root, coveting is idolatry. We read that in our responsive reading this morning. We also see it in Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness says, I can't live without that, that person, that uh, place, that possession. It's making a God of our desires. The Tenth Commandment is not an anticlimactic afterthought. You know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. Try to be happy with what you have. The command not to covet is the heart level culmination of the other nine commandments. And even though we understand from Jesus all the commandments have an internal element, if we didn't have the 10th commandment, it'd be really easy to focus on just external obedience. I mean, if you look at the other commandments, you know, particularly the second table of law, commandments 5 through 9, it almost seems possible, at least in a superficial way. Don't kill people, I can do that. Don't sleep around, I'm good. Don't lie under oath, got it. And we're tempted to just click, you know, check one off, one after the other. And then we get to the 10th commandment. And we realize we can't keep this moral code perfectly. You know, we can conceive of making it through life without having a golden calf to worship. But nobody, at least nobody who's being honest can think of living out their days totally free from coveting. So in this way, God's Ten Commandments provide a framework for us to understand the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the Ten Words to which Jesus conformed his life perfectly, living as he did the life that we've been proven to be unwilling or unable to live. Furthermore, these are the Ten Words that condemn us because of our law-breaking, and therefore they're the impetus for Christ's atoning death on our behalf. Because Christ Jesus, our law-breaking of these commandments, is forgiven. And we're set free for an entirely new way of living, a life in which we lean on his grace to conform our lives to his law and to pursue after him and to pursue after his word, and to pursue after his righteousness for the rest of our lives. That's what the 10th commandment is teaching us. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you. And once again, you have spoken to us by your Son, open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our savior god our father we bow before you we confess our failure to desire you more than anything else we chase after other things we think we can't live without that person without that place without that possession and all the while you're asking us to come to you to pursue you to desire fellowship with you and so by your grace by the power of the holy spirit we ask That you would enable us to come enable us to acknowledge your goodness enable us to remember your faithfulness enable us to honor your uniqueness as the one true god enable us to obey your commands enable us to believe your truth your word is truth grant that we may live like people who love you so we may receive your promised blessings And work in each of our hearts this year as we learn to trust you and your word. And through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the one who conformed his life perfectly to your law. Your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.